the terrible, iconic Battle of Verdun, where France and Germany clashed in 1916, was the longest single battle of the war of more than 300 days and 300 nights. What can we find of the battlefields of Verdun in a day? As this is, incredibly, our 150th episode of The Old Front Line, I thought that finally we'd get round to doing Verdun in a day. But first, 150 episodes. It's quite incredible for me to think that we've now been broadcasting this podcast for more than three years. We're coming up to a million downloads. The podcast statistics are more and more incredulous for me when I look at them to see just how many people are tuning in and listening each week. And we've built up a nice little community of podcast listeners, of those who support the podcast via Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. And thank you to all of them who have helped for this podcast to continue in the way that it has and expand in the way that it has. And more of that, hopefully, in the next 150 episodes. But thanks to you all for listening for downloading, for tuning in on a regular basis, for questions and retweets and comments on Twitter. And as season five of the podcast will be coming to an end this summer, we'll be looking forward to a new season in the autumn with lots more subjects to discuss and hopefully more recording on the ground as well. That's certainly my aim. But let's get down to Verdun or across to Verdun. I've just come back from leading a battlefield tour in the Reims and Verdun area, looking at the French contribution to the Great War, but with an English-speaking group. It's something that's really important to do, and just about everybody that was on that tour had been to the Somme and Ypres and Arras and Luz, and some of the lesser-known British battlefields of the Great War, but they wanted to expand their knowledge to really beyond the Somme, and that tour, looking as we did in the fighting on the Chemende d'Arme and the Aisne, in the fighting in the Champagne and the Argonne and around Verdun, hopefully gave them an insight into the importance of the French contribution to the Great War and the sacrifice that France made in that conflict. And it was something that I felt very strongly over the course of those five days as we were on those battlefields, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, how World War One runs into World War Two and vice versa in many of those areas, and that's particularly so in that ground around Reims, the scene of not just four years of combat on the Western Front during the Great War, but heavy fighting in 1940, the Maginot Line just up the road, and then the whole period of liberation in 1944. And this is something I'm sure we will touch on during the course of this podcast. And as well, of course, I think is that emphasis on the facts, and this is a phrase we've used quite a lot in this podcast, that the war on the Western Front was very much a French war. It was a war in France, about France, and largely involving French troops, who made a much bigger contribution to victory than it often is recognised in the standard English language histories of the Great War. And Verdun, the subject of this podcast, 
we can't really overemphasize the importance of Verdun in the French psyche for what it means to French people. It is a byword to the Great War for most of the French population. And when I lived in France and when I've travelled around France over these many years, if I speak to French people and ask them if they have a personal connection to the Great War, Verdun is probably one of the first places that they will mention. Even if their grandfather perhaps never served there in 1916, it will be seen as the place where all French soldiers went. And to a certain degree, certainly in terms of 1916, that is true. But it's the impact that the outcome of Verdun and the sacrifice, the loss of Verdun and the images that came out of Verdun showing the battlefield completely devastated by those months of fighting, I think that left a deep, deep scar on France, a scar that survives to this day and certainly was still very raw a generation later when France went into conflict once more with the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939. It doesn't account for the collapse of France. That's a much more complex subject for certainly another podcast another day. But it certainly accounts for so much of France's attitude and indeed other major combatant nations' attitude in the late 1930s as another war looked imminent and no one was really prepared to sacrifice a generation again in the same way that that perceived sacrifice had taken place during the Great War. So this is not the first of our Battlefields in a Day podcast. There's a whole series of them now looking at different battlefields. Can we really do justice to Verdun in a Day? Well, I guess in some respects we can't, but many people travel to these areas and they want to get an insight into a battlefield and perhaps only have a day to do it. And that's the intended purpose, really, of a podcast like this to give you a bit of a Verdun taster, a snapshot of Verdun for you to then hopefully go on and explore it in greater depths. I've been visiting Verdun since the summer of 1987. I've led countless and I've lost count of how many battlefield tours that I've taken down there over the last 20 odd years. It's a place that eternally fascinates me, and every time I go there, I feel a strong connection to it. It's a part of the Western Front that, that does feel very different to others for all kinds of reasons, and I'm sure, again, we will touch on some of that during the course of this podcast. But first, as we do with all of these Battlefields in a Day podcast, let's look at a bit of background to the fighting at Verdun. In 1914, when the outbreak of war, that was the Battle of the Frontiers. And the frontier, the Belgian frontier, is only tens of kilometres away from Verdun to the north. The battles along that frontier cost the French army tremendous casualties in the summer of 1914. And although some of those battlefields resulted in good outcomes for the French army, even at great loss... The German steamroller, the Schlieffen plan that was pushing towards Paris to try and launch that lightning strike to end the war in the West was unstoppable and the forces were pushed back into this part of the Meuse. The river Meuse runs through here and dominates this landscape in all kinds of ways and that by the end of 1914 led to an establishment of the front, both sides digging in in this area around the river Meuse and the formation of a curve in the line around the city of Verdun forming what we call a salient, a bit like the Ypres salient, 
where the line came down and across and Verdun sat in a kind of a bulge with the Germans being able to fire at it from multiple different angles. It was an area of open fields, farmland with some areas of woodland, not quite in the same scale as it is today, but there was plenty of high ground and the bulk of that high ground was defended by the French army holding this ground. The position at Verdun, to a degree, looked reasonably safe unless a major German offensive was planned for here. And 1915 was a bit of a quiet year at Verdun because the French army was fighting on other parts of the Western Front with the battles of Artois in the north and the fighting in the Champagne and the heavy fighting just down the road in the Argonne Forest. But this was a quiet sector a quiet sector with the usual trench systems, but one of the other features of this part of the battlefield were fortifications, forts and ouvrages, redoubts that had been built, some of them earthworks, some of them partially concreted with bunkers and machine gun positions, and these were all part of a system of defences that had been built round Verdun in the 19th century following the Franco-Prussian War to try and stop the Germans from ever breaking through again. Now there was a defensive line on a much greater scale. This was a ring of forts, but now there was 450 miles of the Western Front. And in 1915, the French were holding close on nearly 400 miles of that, with the British holding a small portion and the Belgians to the north. But in the build-up to the Battle of Verdun, that, that terrible, iconic battle of the First World War that began on the 21st of February 1916, Many were warning that an offensive here was coming. One of those, Colonel Emile Drion, the commander of the Battalion Chasseur à Pied, the light infantry who were holding the northern part of the Verdun battlefield, and we'll return to Drion later. The battle began with this huge German offensive. Was it a German attempt to bleed the French nation white, as we have so often read over the years? Was it a breakthrough battle? Was it much more than that? And I think historians will be arguing over that for many years to come, and it's worth looking at the literature to see how our view of Verdun has changed and is changing over the years. But it was a battle, the longest single battle of the First World War, 300 days, 300 nights, over 770,000 casualties, combining the French and the German losses here in 1916, so devastating for both sides. If Germany's intention was to bleed the French nation white, they kind of bled themselves as much white in this ground here at Verdun in 1916 as well. And it's the scale, the statistics of Verdun are staggering. You know, those 770,000 casualties, 300-day battle. In the opening barrage on the 21st of February 1916, 2.5 million German shells dropped in nine hours onto the French positions. Two and a half million shells in nine hours. Now the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the bombardment that led up to that over seven days, saw just over 1.7 million shells fired in a week. This was two and a half million shells in nine hours. A staggering, devastating bombardment. And that was from weapons of trench mortar calibre, Minenwerfers, Granatenwerfers, right up to the super heavy guns, the 420mm Big Berthas that could fire these one metric ton shells tens of kilometres 
to take out key targets like the forts. The forts were hit heavily by these super heavy guns. It was a massive bombardment with all calibres of artillery. And it's staggering that the French army didn't collapse under the weight of that bombardment alone. But the attack began. The Germans made good progress in the early stage of the battle, pushing the French army back, capturing some of the key forts like Fort Dormont and later in June Fort Vaux. But the fighting revolved around some of the smaller ouvrages like Foiterre, Ouvrage de Tiamont. The fighting also moved to the west bank of the Meuse because this initial attack was on the east bank, just northeast of Verdun, and on the west bank of the Meuse was high ground around the hills of Cote 304 and Mortholme that were defended by the French, and for over two months there was heavy fighting there until the Germans pushed the French off that high ground. And the situation looked desperate as the Battle of the Somme approached, but with the beginning of the Somme offensive the Germans realised that they could not maintain a major offensive at Verdun and a major defensive on the Somme simultaneously. And the last full-scale attacks at Verdun peter out in the second week of July 1916 and the Germans go on the back foot and the French begin their attempt to push the Germans back. And over the course of the rest of the battle, some ground is retaken, not all of it. Some of the forts are retaken. Fort Vaux and Fort Dormont are both retaken by the end of the battle but the high ground to the very north is still in German hands and the cost has been enormous. Total casualties combining the French and German losses, as we've said, over 770,000 men. And for the soldiers who fought there, for the French, it was known as the mill on the Meuse or the mincing machine, this idea that the Verdun was this great machine that sucked men in and destroyed them and threw a handful of survivors out at the other end. And when we look at the images of the landscape by the end of the battle in December 1916, it is smashed to oblivion by artillery fire in a way that is way beyond the experience of Passchendaele or the Somme. This landscape has been completely obliterated by the fighting. And every time I look at the images of it, it looks as if it's pictures of an alien planet. So I think the men who were there, perhaps they felt the same way. But with the winter approaching, the fighting at Verdun came to an end, but didn't end. It wasn't just a skip to the end of the war. Fighting returned to Verdun in 1917 with French attacks on the west bank of the Meuse to regain some of that ground. And then in 1918, the French handed over parts of this sector to the American Expeditionary Force and the Bois de Cour, where Drion had fought at the very beginning of the battle in February 1916, that ground was retaken by American troops in that final phase of the Meuse-Argonne offensive. And just to the northeast of Verdun was where the last American soldier was killed on the 11th of November 1918, the last Allied soldier of the Great War to die on the Western Front, Henry Gunther killed at 10.59. The divisional history says that as he fell and his body touched the soil of France, the war ended. So Verdun, a battlefield for the French, involved other nations beside. It wasn't the British battlefield of the Great War, although British volunteers in the Red Cross did serve there with ambulance units in 1916 and in other phases of the war. But it is a symbolic French battlefield that over the course of the war was seen by the French people to have almost cost them a generation, which is why it became that byword for the First World War in France. So that's a bit of historical background. There's a lot more in the reading out there, both on the internet and 
with books to kind of understand the Battle of 1916 and the wider years of war at Verdun. But we always look at the practicalities in these Battlefields in a Day podcasts. How do we get to Verdun? Well, you can obviously drive there from the French coast. It's quite a long way into France. It would take you a good four and a half hours plus to come down from Calais. There are plenty of places to stay in the area from hotels to bed and breakfast. There's no big chain hotel as such in Verdun. There is an Ibis budget, but that's kind of at the lower end of the budget hotels. There are some smaller hotels. But out on the battlefield itself, there are jeets and Airbnbs, and that's a good way to kind of connect and stay on the battlefields themselves. The Verdun Tourist Office has more about this, and we'll put a link to their website on the podcast website as well. In terms of getting around, you really need a car to do Verdun properly. You can walk it, but it is quite a hike if you were staying in central Verdun to hike up onto the battlefields each day, then do a walk, and then walk back to Verdun. There's no public transport that will take you up onto the battlefields. There are some local guides, but there's no kind of regular departure of localised tours going up onto the battlefields each day. Perhaps that will change over the next few years, because as I understand it, the numbers of people visiting Verdun is rising each year. Beyond the Great War centenary, people are still connecting with these battlefields. It's very different terrain if you're used to visiting northern France and the rolling chalklands of Arras, Combray and the Somme. It's a forested area. It was declared a national forest after the war. The whole battlefield was forested. And so it's a lot more difficult, really, to kind of get a sense of the terrain unless you do walk aspects of it. Because with this big tree canopy covering everything, you can't clearly see the ground as it was in 1916. There's a lot of reforesting going on. I noticed that when I was there last week where they've chopped down sections and they're replanting trees that's been going on as long as I've been visiting Verdun and sadly it seems to be done in a kind of blunt way so that at ground level the trenches and the shell holes there do seem to get destroyed in the process of replanting which is a great shame but the weather at Verdun is what I would describe as the extreme end of the scale you can have very very hot days and very wet days and very cold days as well. I've been there in all of those kind of conditions. Boiling hot days when the importance of carrying your own water is really high because there's very little civilization up on the main battlefield area itself. Really absolutely pelting it down wet days when you're kind of going to shelter under trees to get out of the rain. And I've been up there in the snow and the deep snow as well when the whole battlefield is kind of transformed by that. If you get a chance to go there in the winter and see it in those conditions, it's really quite interesting. The snow lays in the shell holes in some of the open areas, and it really gives you kind of an insight into the moonscape that Verdun once was. It's an area as well where there's a high prevalence of mosquitoes. It's quite renowned for that, so if you're prone to get bitten, then you need to take preparations for that. And it is a national forest, deliberately forested after the war to preserve the Verdun battlefield. Beneath that canopy is this huge array of Great War remains of trenches and positions and bunkers and shell holes and everything else. It's totally forbidden to dig or metal detect on these battlefields. When I first went there in 87, you could walk off a track or walk off one of the roads and there was the detritus of war everywhere, helmets, rifles, bayonets, 
water bottles and trenching tools scattered around, filling up shell holes. All of that has pretty much gone and it is now forbidden to do any kind of picking up of artifacts or digging or metal detecting. It is one vast cemetery in many ways, so you've got to ask yourself, is that kind of behaviour appropriate? But more than that, it is the law, and you will be punished as such if caught doing that, and quite a few collectors have fallen foul of that over the years. Go there, take your photographs, walk that ground, but don't take stuff away. That's the kind of approach to this, I think. And in terms of supplementary material, podcasts and books, there's quite a lot of First World War podcasts out there. I always recommend listening to other podcasts. But in terms of Verdun content, there's some really good material on Mike Cunyas, who's been a guest on this podcast before, on his Battles of the First World War podcast, highly recommended. I remember listening to some episodes that he did on Verdun when I was in Verdun during the centenary in 2016. So Mike's work, highly, highly recommended. And he's got some great chats on, recent chats on his podcast between French historians of the First World War. So that's worth looking out for as well. So do give Mike a follow and also Alex, uh, 315th Regiment of Infantry, 315ème, who's on Twitter, who puts a lot of material up there about the French battlefields of the Great War, and in particular Verdun from the perspective of the 315th Regiment of Infantry. So those are both worth a follow. And Christina Holstein is on Twitter now, so she's worth following because her books, her guidebooks on Verdun really are second to none. If you're going to buy one book on Verdun, then buy one of Christina's books. It will get you there, it will guide you around. Fantastic information, superbly researched, written and illustrated accounts of the battlefields as they are now. Supplemented by earlier works by Alistair Horns, Price of Glory. It's the classic book on Verdun. You can't visit again Verdun really without reading that book. And there are some more recent studies of Verdun that are worth looking at as well. And we'll put some insights into all of these and the books mentioned onto the podcast website. But of course, some of the key works on this battle are in French or German. And that is one of the issues with really truly understanding Verdun is having the language skills to get to grips with the material that's out there. And a classic example is Pericard's book on Verdun, which came out this massive, blue, beautiful book, which covers all of the years of the war at Verdun and the accounts. He went around interviewing hundreds, probably thousands of Verdun veterans, put their accounts in the book with previously unpublished photographs. Magnificent original book, if you can get your hands on a copy of it. The 1916 section reprinted, but all of it is in French. There is no English translation, and I doubt if there ever will be. Also out there as well is the French official history and the German green official history volumes. There are several of those covering Verdun. The French volumes are available via the Great War Group. Part of your membership is access to their digital library and they've digitised the French volumes, which are available on there to download, including the maps, which is really useful. But like I say, if you're going to start with just one book on Verdun, Alistair Horne is the classic account, and Christina Holstein's work, her walking Verdun, is your best kind of overall guidebook to that battlefield. So start with those. And not forgetting maps in the digital age, we can have Google running and all that kind of stuff, but there is pretty poor signal, phone signal up on the Verdun battlefields, and paper maps 
are really important to our understanding of the landscape of the Great War. There is a special map that covers the forest of Verdun that shows all the memorials and the sites and the forts and the wooded areas and little zigzag marks where there's particular areas of trenches that you can go and have a look at. That is an excellent battlefield map, one of, one of the best. And there is a, a Major and Mrs Holt style map of Verdun now, which is not by them. It follows in the same kind of style as their maps. It's produced by someone else, but that is also highly recommended, and we'll put a lead to that on the podcast website. So that gives us a bit of background, tells us how to get there and get around, where to stay, and what to look at before you go. So let's move on to Verdun in a day and take the tour. We begin our look at Verdun in a day outside of the city, behind the lines, on the Voie Sacrée, the Sacred Way. This was the main arterial route for men and supplies for bombs, bullets and bayonets coming up to the front to feed the war machine that fought around Verdun in 1916, the French army that defended this ground. And the whole route is a memorial in its own right, running 72 kilometres, more than 45 miles, from the railhead at Bar-le-Duc, behind the lines, up to the railway station at Verdun. And every kilometre of that route is marked with a memorial stone with the shape of a French Adrienne helmet on the top of it. But we've stopped at the main memorial that is in the final approach to where what is now known as the D1916, I guess it was renumbered symbolically for the centenary, at this point just southwest of Verdun, it joins the main road into the city, main road into the battlefield area, and there is a memorial to the Voie Sacre here, a big stone memorial with these friezes along the base of it showing these lines and lines of trucks. And what the Voie Sacre was, it really highlights the importance of logistics in a battle, in any battle. We've spoken a lot about the infrastructure that the British Army put in on the northern part of the Western Front to feed and supply their troops, and that investment in infrastructure was part of the way to victory in the final years of the Great War, and that was true in the French Army as well. General Pétain, who commanded the troops at Verdun, realised this and he ensured that there was this key supply route from a railhead further enough away from the battlefield so it could not be hit by long-range German artillery. You could build up supplies there, then use these columns of vehicles to send those supplies up to the frontline area to be dropped off in depots near to the battlefield and then carried up by smaller vehicles or by horses, donkeys and mules or by the men themselves. And it was a continuous line of lorries operating along this road. One truck passed every 14 seconds to give you an idea. And it was night and day, 24 hours a day. Thousands of men drove over 3,500 lorries along the Voie Sacre. There was also a single-track light railway running alongside the Voie Sacre, the Mersian, and this also brought up a lot of supplies and food into the battlefield area. 
The road and the railway had to be constantly maintained with just the passage of those thousands of trucks, the road would degrade. So there were labour battalions and French engineer units working here constantly to keep this vital supply route open. And in terms of defending the kind of ground that was on the battlefield at Verdun, the only way it could be done was to supply those trenches with men to defend them and then supply those men in the trenches with the bullets and the food and the water and everything else that they required to hold that ground. And that's what this Voie Sacrée was all about. So it's a good way to start a visit to Verdun by beginning here on the sacred way, the Voie Sacrée. And as you come up into the final approach to Verdun itself, the road merges with another route. And we've spoken earlier in the podcast how World War I overlaps World War II and vice versa here because this final approach into Verdun is part of the Voie de la Liberté, the Liberty Way, the route that runs from Utah Beach and St. Mary Glees in Normandy through to Paris and then out here into eastern France and ending at Bastogne where the Battle of the Bulge was in the winter of 1944-45. And along this next section of the route as we come into the city of Verdun itself, you'll see the white domed markers of the Liberty Way every kilometre as well. So the Voie Sacrée and the Voie de la Liberté sit side by side, the Great War and the Second Greater War side by side here at Verdun. Along this road came American troops in the autumn of 1944 to liberate this ground and push the Germans out into the far side of the Lorraine where the battles of that autumn took place between American and German forces. The road then takes us into the city of Verdun itself. Verdun was on the front line for all four years of the First World War and it came under a lot of shell fire. The Germans did target areas in and around Verdun where they knew there were troop build-ups and logistics points, but the civilian population continued to live in the city throughout the conflict, particularly in 1916, when gas was now a part of the battlefield, and Verdun sits in a hollow with the Meurs running through the middle of the city and surrounded by the high ground of the East Bank and the West Bank, where the front lines were, and when gas drifted off those battlefields, it settled in and around the city. So this was a great problem when you had French civilians here. They were not combatants, and suddenly they were being subjected to the conditions of a battlefield. And it was seen as, in terms of morale, it was seen important to keep the civilian population here. If you evacuated the civilians, you were as good as saying that Verdun was about to fall. So the civilian population remained in place and gas masks were issued to them. Probably the first widespread issue of gas masks in the history of warfare to civilians. The city was damaged through those four years. It wasn't flattened and erased from the landscape in the way that Albert or Ypres on the British sectors were and indeed other places on the French sector of the Western Front. So you will see a lot of original buildings with battle damage on them and then later buildings that were replacing ones that were destroyed during those years of conflict. In the centre of the town, there's a long flight of steps that leads up to a memorial building flanked by two artillery pieces. There used to be a fountain running down the middle of it. It's now planted with flowers in a semi-pedestrianised area of Verdun. 
And when I first came to Verdun in 1987, and I've told this story in a previous podcast, but it's worth repeating here, I came to this building, this memorial, because I'd heard that the cards to issue the Verdun Medal, which was a campaign medal issued to those who fought at Verdun in 1916, were contained in this building. I'm not sure whether they still are, but you could go in there in those days. And I walked up these steps, the doors were open, walked inside, and there were all these filing cabinets. And I was interested because my grandmother was French, she had an unusual surname, and I was looking for anyone with that surname who may have fought in the Battle of Verdun. So I opened a couple of cabinets, picked out some cars to see what letters of the alphabet they covered, worked my way to the R's to find the Rosés, my grandmother's name, and all of a sudden, out of the darkness, the room felt as if it was empty, but out of the darkness appeared this man who then proceeded to chastise me. He said, how dare you touch those sacred cards? So I replied in French, I'm sorry, monsieur, I didn't mean to cause any offence. I'm looking for some ancestors who may have fought here. And he went, oh, he said, by your accent, you're not German. So I said, no, I'm, I'm English, but my grandmother was French. And he went, oh, th th that's fine. Touch any card, look at anything you want, do what you wish. And I guess at the time, I probably didn't see exactly how symbolic that kind of conversation was, but it showed there just over 40 years after the end of the Second World War that the old feelings between France and Germany, those feelings of animosity, of even hatred still very much existed then. And I hope the cards have been preserved. I don't believe they've been digitised, but it would be great if someone did that further down the line. But it's an important memorial, one often overlooked and well worth seeing when you're in Verdun itself. The centre of Verdun has a couple of good, really good bookshops. Again, if you do have the language skills, there are some great First World War books published in French and the Maison de la Presse in particular was a place that I always used to go to when I went to Verdun to see what the latest books were that had just come out in French. There used to be a fantastic second-hand bookshop in Verdun which had piles of ephemera. I went there once on my birthday leading a tour into Verdun. A bit miserable to be working on my birthday but walked into this bookshop. It was kind of a time capsule and there was a big pile of Verdun trench maps and they were then acquired for the old frontline archive, and I'm pleased to say that I still have them to this day. And there used to be a really good militaria shop in Verdun as well, but I don't believe either of those are there anymore, and those kind of shops have disappeared in France in the same way that they have in Britain. So aside from my often spoken about mythical junk shops in Sussex, I had the equivalents in places like Verdun in France as well close to the centre of Verdun, the River Meuse runs right through here and you've got a couple of things to go and look at there as well. There's the City War Memorial which has got some very fine sculptures of French troops on it just by the bridge over the Meuse and when you stand on that bridge and you look at the twin towers of the gateway there, that symbol of the two towers was the symbol later adopted by the American engineers as their unit badge and this is where the implementation of that design for their badge not their cap badge their collar badges this is where it began in 1918 there's also the citadel 
This is a defended city, so it has city walls and defences, and the citadel of Verdun became a main headquarters during the battle in 1916. There is the Verdun experience you can see when you go there. You can get on kind of a little train that takes you around and it tells you about the different aspects of the history of the citadel, its connection to the Battle of Verdun, and its connection as well to the story of France's unknown soldier, which this is where the coffins of French unknown warriors were brought to to be selected and one of them would be chosen to be buried underneath the Arc de Triomphe in, uh, in Paris. In the moat around the citadel are sculptures, are statues of French generals. That's also worth going to have a look at. And within Verdun itself, there is a main French cemetery from the fighting in 1916, the Faubourg de Pavé Cemetery, which is on the eastern side of the city in the approach to the main battlefield area. And that's worth going into. It's got over 5,000 French burials from the First World War. There are some from the Second World War in there as well, another place where World War One and World War Two overlap. Some British and Commonwealth Air Force graves from World War Two as well. But in the central part of it is a special memorial to those French unknown soldiers who were not chosen to be buried in Paris. The French were the only ones that specially honoured those soldiers and the ones that were not chosen by Britain were reburied in secrets. The American ones are buried in the Meurs-Argonne Cemetery, but there is no particular memorial indicating that they are those graves. But in France, they created this special tomb with this big central cross, and each of those unknown warriors that were not selected are buried in tombs around the centrepiece of that cross. It was done, as we mentioned, in the Citadel, Search parties went out and recovered unknown French soldiers from the great battlefields where the French army had fought on the Western Front. And the youngest soldier in his regiment, Auguste Sin, of the 132nd Regiment of Infantry, he was the one who was selected to choose the coffin that would be reburied under the Arc de Triomphe. He was very nervous doing this and he didn't know which one to choose. He was worried that he might make a mistake, not that a mistake really could be made under these circumstances. So what he did is he added together the numbers of his regiment, one, three and two, to make six. And that was the coffin that was then taken to become France's unknown warrior, France's soldat inconnu, who's buried in that special grave underneath the Arc de Triomphe in the centre of Paris. So from here, coming into Verdun via the Voie Sacrée, having seen the city itself, we'll follow the road up onto the battlefield area and see the sites where the fighting raged in 1916. Following the road up into the heart of the battlefields, the Cour de Verdun, as it was often referred to in those early years that I used to visit these battlefields. In that drive up, we come into the forested area. The whole battlefield, symbolic as it was, was chosen to become a site of a national memorial on a big scale by planting this national forest across the battlefield to preserve it, to preserve the trenches and the shell holes and everything that that landscape had become. Churchill, Winston Churchill, had come up with this idea for the ground around Ypres, for example, to forest Ypres, to plant it with trees, to preserve it for all time. But there, the population of Belgium, who we'd gone to war for, quite rightly and understandably wanted their ground back and wanted their villages and farms, and that was never done. But here at Verdun, in this vast open space of France that France has, it was possible here, and this memorial site 
planted with these trees was created as a consequence. This was all once part of that zone rouge, that red zone, the area of France so badly affected by the war that to qualify to be a part of it, you had to be a community that had suffered a minimum of 80% destruction. Around Verdun, up here on the battlefield, nothing really had survived. Houses had been reduced to powder, villages destroyed, the landscape smashed to bits, as we've said. And during the centenary, there was a lot of reporting about how and why Verdun was forested like this because it was unplantable, unfarmable, unlivable in after the war, which is not really the case. It's a subject that I want to return to, the myth of the modern Zone Rouge. And there are areas of this battlefield that are not accessible to the public, not because they are so dangerous, but because they are part of French Ministry of Defence military grounds where for example, north of Douaumont for many years, there was a firing range. So the old sign saying, do not enter, danger of death are there, not because of shells or gas or chemicals in the ground, but because of the ongoing activities of the modern French army. And when we look at the ground here at Verdun, it is perhaps no more or less dangerous than the Somme or up the road in the Champagne. There in those vast open fields of those Champagne battlefields, the ploughers at work every year, several times a year, and shell after shell, munition after munition is turned up multiple times each year. Here at Verdun, there isn't that kind of danger with unexploded ordnance because the trees hold the landscape together, and the only time it comes up is when those trees are felled and the battlefields are cleared for the replanting of those trees. Locked into the landscape beneath the tree canopy, of course, is all the problems that these battlefields had in terms of the ground being saturated with gas and everything else. So there is an element of truth to this. Whether that is still an issue, when you see how nature has recovered this landscape and how it thrives and the wildlife thrives here, that's a matter of some debate, but something we'll return to another day. But coming up here, as, we, as soon as we come into this forested area, even in the summer when I was there last week, Despite the undergrowth, we could see amongst the trees the signs of the trenches, communication trenches coming up, positions, shell holes, and already you can begin to see just how pummeled this ground was in 1916. And you'll pass as you're coming up this road, the ruined water tower that fed water into the fort of Souville, which is on the rising ground ahead of you to your right. You'll come up alongside the Maginot Memorial, André Maginot, was wounded here in 1916. He became Minister of War and oversaw the construction of the now famous Maginot Line, the system of defences along the French border that was meant to protect France from a future attack. So whereas at Verdun in the 19th century they built forts in a ring around the city as part of its protections, this was the next stage of that kind of defence by building an entire line, a wall, to keep the enemy out. And Maginot was the one who had presided over that and his name gave the fortifications its title. And the nearest bit of Maginot line fortification is only about 40 kilometres to the north from here at the Ouvrage de Fermont, for example. You can stand on the roof of that and look back and see the tower of the ossuary at Douaumont. We'll also pass the Lion of Souville, the memorial that commemorates the defenders of Souville, Fort Souville, tucked away in the trees on the right-hand side. Parts of it are accessible, parts of it not. 
This was the last point in which the Germans broke through in July 1916, got up onto the roof of Souville. They could see the sun glinting on the Meuse as it ran through the city of Verdun, and that was the nearest that German soldiers got to Verdun itself, except as prisoners of war. And we're now on the front line for the summer of 1916, the high tide mark, really, of the German offensive, running from where we are here at Fort Souville across to Fleury on the left. And that brings us up to the Memorial, the museum that was created in the 1960s by the veterans of the Battle of Verdun who wanted to perpetuate the memory of what they had done, the sacrifice of their comrades, so that future generations would not forget. And this old-style museum was constructed, a museum full of artefacts, relics, things donated by veterans, central piece, no man's land, with a bit of reconstructed battlefield with battlefield detritus in it. It was a very impressive museum, one that I really loved visiting every time I came to Verdun. You always saw something new that you hadn't seen before, had an old-style bookshop and you could find all kind of goodies in there. And last week I went for the first time to see the new version of it. I missed out on it in 2016 and for various reasons didn't go back to visit that particular museum up to the time of the Covid years. And although it is an impressive museum still, it's much more about an experience now. It's a very modern museum and the actual museum space inside it felt smaller somehow despite the fact that it looks to be slightly a bigger building where they've built the extensions to it. It's still impressive. It's got a lot of fascinating material in it. It is multilingual. It's still got a kind of no man's land section, but it's film now rather than artifact based that section of it. But it felt very different. Perhaps a museum from modern age and, and the new visitors that will come to Verdun. But I kind of miss some of these older museums as well. And just around the corner from the memorial and it is very much worthwhile going in there to kind of ground yourself in the history of Verdun and set the scene for your visits on the battlefield itself but the memorial sits right on the front line at Fleury and you can walk from the car park into the village Disparu, the disappeared village, the village Détruit, destroyed village of Fleury that sat on the front line was changed hands something like 16 times during the battle nothing of it remained apart from a few bricks and a few stones of some of the older buildings but as you follow the path through what was the main street of Fleury then you see the names of the people who once lived there and the site of the boulangerie the site of the local blacksmith and the site of the church no one lives here now there are a whole number of these disappeared villages destroyed villages across France not just here at Verdun and no one lives in them but there is symbolically a mayor of each one a very proud position to hold being the mayor of one of these special villages who like the men who fell on the battlefield who had mort pour la france died for france these villages kind of did the same thing and there is a ceremony here every year in which the mayor comes and the villages are remembered so it's worth walking down to see Fleury when you're here at the Memorial to give you an insight into these disappeared villages that are very much part of this Verdun landscape. And there are a whole number of them you can see, but this one is quite handy that it's tucked alongside one of the main museums. From there we follow the road up to the Ossery and National Cemetery at Douaumont. Now we've done a previous podcast episode about Fleury to Douaumont, which you can go back through the back catalogue to listen to that, covers this area in greater depth. But following this route up to the National Cemetery, as you come up to the road junction, you begin to see the rows and rows of graves ahead of you to your right. 
you can begin to get some sense of scale. It's, it's impossible to imagine some of the statistics connected to the Battle of Verdun, but once we begin to see the rows and rows of graves in this cemetery, there are over 16,000 burials from the Battle of Verdun in 1916. You can get a begin to get a bit of an insight into the scale of loss. And these are all French soldiers who fell here on their flanks. There is a, a Jewish, much older Jewish memorial that commemorates Jewish soldiers who fell for France in the Great War and a more recent memorial to the Muslim troops of France's colonies, the, the colonial soldiers who fought at Verdun in 1916 and were so instrumental in taking back some of the ground in the final phase of the battle. And then you come round to the main building of the ossuary, this big, tall tower with two dome structures either side of it. And this is the ossuary, the memorial. It's a memorial chapel that commemorates those who fell in the Battle of Verdun. There's no memorials to the missing at sites like Verdun. France never built those. And through public subscription, families can have plaques placed in buildings like this. And there are similar buildings on all of the main French battlefields of the Great War. So there was no national memorial to commemorate the missing, but if you had the money, you could put a plaque, and that's what you'll find inside the main body of the building. The tower is this great kind of symbol. I was talking to Alex, 315 Regiment of Infantry, the other day about this, and we were both saying how, for, for us, it symbolised the shell, the bombardments, but it is a tower at the top of which is a massive bell that rings out to the souls of the dead. And it's a lighthouse as well that casts its beam out across the battlefield. And it was one of a whole number of lighthouses like this that were planned on the key battlefields of the First World War. Some were built, Notre Dame de Lorette. There's one at Cerny on the Chemin de Dame, a smaller one and then this massive one here at Verdun, and the beam still beams out across the battlefields. And if you get a chance to come up to Verdun at night to see that, it really is worth doing so. The ossuary, again, has changed since my last visit. You have to pay to go in the ossuary now, which surprised me. You can watch a little film. There is a little museum in there. You can go to the top of the tower and then wander around. It's a very solemn place. You can't take photographs, and it's there as a place of reflection. But on the outside are these glass panels to look into what is underneath the ossuary because the ossuary is a place where you bury the dead and underneath this building are the bones of between 120 and 130,000 French and German soldiers who fell at Verdun in 1916. The bones were collected up off this smashed landscape after the war and then buried in this massive ossuary afterwards. And the panels where you can look into it, see the skulls looking back at you, the piles of rib cages and pelvises, that's all there as a warning to future generations. This is what war costs. Don't go to war again. And so this memorial inaugurated by André Maginot in 1923 and opened just under a decade later stood there in those years leading up to a Second World War and the warning was not heeded. Another terrible conflict drew France once more into war a generation later. And when you come out of the ossuary and you stand there on the steps with the tower above and behind you, looking down on those rows and rows of thousands of white crosses that cover the area of the Douaumont French National Cemetery, you think of the losses, but you also think as well as how World War I and World War II collide here, that there is one grave missing from this cemetery. Marshal Pétain, the man who commanded the French forces at Verdun, achieve that victory 
adhered to that famous saying, Il ne passeront pas, they shall not pass. His grave is missing from this cemetery because in that war, a generation later, he became the leader, dug out of retirement once more, he became the leader of Vichy France, collaborative France, collaborators with the Nazis, and that whole dark and complex period of France's history from 1940 to 44. And when France was liberated and General de Gaulle eventually became President de Gaulle, but in that interim period when victory was achieved, Pétain was a war criminal. There was a desire to execute him, but he was imprisoned, died as an old man, and is buried in an island off of mainland France. His dying wish was to be buried with his men here at Verdun. And I've done a lot of work recently on France at war in World War II and the period of occupation by the Germans and resistance and the Holocaust and everything else besides. And I've come to the conclusion that France won't really ever truly come to terms with those four years of World War II, 1940 to 44, until perhaps Pétain is actually buried here alongside his men. Perhaps that will be the moment in which France properly confronts its past but who knows from the ossuary we continue along a road through the forest passing an area where we see a lot of trenches from the first world war including some exposed by the side of the road the tranchée de Londres, for example which you can walk through and i noticed last week that they've shored up one section of it with timber and tried to reconstruct it in a way and that's worth having a look at and that brings you out at one of the forts at Verdun, the forts, the fortifications, the ouvrages, they are all part of the story, a symbolic part of the story of the Battle of 1916. And Fort Dumont is the largest fort of them all and on the highest position at Verdun and very much a symbol of the whole battle, Dumont, the fort and everything it stood for being very much at the centre of that Verdun story. The forts were, were built, as we've said, in the 19th century to create this ring of fortifications. Dormont was worked on from 1885. They were still adding bits to it right up to 1913. It cost 6.1 million gold francs. I've tried to translate that into modern currency. I can't seem to do that. It's a huge amount of money, no matter what. 6.1 million gold francs. It was bristling with armaments, 155mm turret that popped up and down and spun 360 degrees, 75mm turret, machine gun turrets, observation cupolas, machine guns down in the moat of the forts to provide enfilade fire down every direction if the enemy got into the moat of the fortification. And they added a, a Borge casemate latterly with four 75mm guns in there to provide flanking fire from the fort as well and on the outbreak of war had a considerable garrison within the fort but 1914 everything changed with the German invasion of Belgium and the use of their 420mm howitzers the big berthers to smash the Liège forts that made fortifications like this to a degree redundant General Joff disarmed these forts took out the garrisons and spread all that war material across the whole western front and so only a very small garrison was defending Fort Dumont when the battle began in February 1916. It came under fire from the German 420s, and you can see evidence of that damage up on the main superstructure, the roof of the fort today. But 
German troops didn't reach the fort until the 25th of February, a few days into the battle, and a small party of assault troops got to the fort. One peeled off under a pioneer sergeant, Pioneer Sergeant Kunz. Others went off with a group of officers. Kunz got to the edge of the moat of the fort, which was surrounded by a railed fence, a section of which had been blown off hanging down into the moat, forming a kind of ladder. So he went down there into the moat, expecting, I would guess, to be machine gunned by the machine guns and the embrasures that were in each corner of the moat itself. But there were no troops in there, so he went over to one of these embrasures, got a leg up into the machine gun slit, was able to crawl inside. The others followed him, and they then got into the central tunnels of the fort. So this was a bit of a design fault, really. If the enemy got into your moat, got into this machine gun bunker... They were in the fort. The 155mm turret was still firing and Kunz could hear that so he made his way along the tunnel into the corridors close to where the firing was taking place, followed the sound basically and that led him into the firing position where the Galapan gun was. This was a special turret with a 155mm gun with counterweights that could pop the turret up and down, spin it 360 degrees and that was firing. He got in there, small group of men, raised his pistol and took the garrison prisoner. And effectively at that point, Fort Douaumont fell. So a fort which had cost 6.1 million gold francs fell just to a handful of German soldiers in February 1916. And it was such a blow to France to lose Fort Douaumont that it was felt that it should be retaken almost at any cost. And the battle was to try and recapture Fort Dormont, it is estimated cost the lives of more than 100,000 French soldiers in 1916. It was eventually retaken by General Mongin's colonial corps at the end of the battle, towards the end of the battle in October of 1916, and you'll find memorials to them on the walls of the fort. When you go there now, you can go into the fort, you can go on a guided tour, a self-guided one where you walk round, you have to follow a prescribed route now. You can't just wander around like you used to before. But there's a lot of fascinating sights to see within the fort itself. The smashed tunnels, the ones damaged by 420mm shell strikes and some of the later French bombardments that killed German soldiers within the fort. You can see the 155mm turret that was restored to a fully working condition a few years ago and I think there are some weekends in the year when the turret is manned by reenactors and it goes up and down and spins round. When the Germans occupied the forts in May 1916 there was an ammunition explosion in one part of the fort that killed more than 600 German soldiers and they were buried in a walled off part of one of the tunnels and that is the only German military cemetery in this central area of the main Verdun battlefield. And then you can, of course, go up on top of the fort to see the turrets, the 75 turret, the 155 turret, the machine guns, the damage to the superstructure of the fort caused by the heavy artillery strikes. The moat was cleared out a few years ago. It was always full of trees in the early years that I visited, and you can see the area where Kunz came down into the moat and got into the machine gun embrasure and then into the central part of the fort. And it's an incredible place to visit. And from the roof, you've got these fantastic views across the Verdun landscape, seeing, of course, the fighting relating to the ground of 1916, but way in the distance there, the Belgian border, and just short of that, 
the echoes of the next war, the Second World War, with the Maginot Line. There was talk some years ago of Fort Duomont becoming a hotel, incredulously. That hasn't happened. It's pretty much as it was as a new entrance to it. But otherwise, this remains one of the fascinating places at Verdun that really kind of inspired me to discover more. Fort Vaux, just down the road, can also be visited. Some of the other ouvrages. Many of the forts are still owned and maintained by the French Ministry of Defence, cannot be entered by the public and are far too dangerous to do that. So please always think twice before you go exploring into the sites of these forts. But Duermont and also Vaux give you an insight into what the whole war revolving around these forts was like and what conditions within them were like as well. From Fort Duermont we return back towards the ossuary, then turn off and en route we pass the Trench of Bayonets, which we've covered in a previous podcast episode. The road takes us through the forested area down into the valley of the Meuse at Bras. There is another French military cemetery in this village. Then we go northwards following the river and turn off and go up into the very tip, the point of the spear of the battlefield at the Bois de Cour. And this is where Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drion, who commanded the 56th and the 59th Battalion Chasseur à Pied, French Light Infantry, had his positions. He was born in Picardy in 1855. He was a regular soldier. He was a member of the French Parliament for Nancy. He'd been trained at the French equivalent of Sandhurst, Saint-Cyr. And as Captain Danritz, his nom de plume, He'd written a whole load of books about future war in what we would describe as the Edwardian period, some of which are pretty anti-English in their tone. He was recalled for military service in 1914 and he commanded his unit up here in the Bois de Cour for quite some time in the lead-up to the Battle of Verdun and was one of those who warned that there was a build-up going on here. It's quite clear the Germans were preparing for some kind of major attack but his warnings were ignored, ignored until the point the battle began with that terrible German bombardment on the 21st of February 1916. He built up a whole series of defences here, used a lot of concrete, he created a large concrete command post in the centre of the wood, and then on the edge of the woods it faced the German positions towards the neighbouring village of Flabas. He built a whole series of machine gun bunkers there which are still there if you walk along the edge of the wood and on one trip Christina Holstein very kindly took me to those to show me where they were you can trace his whole defence position there but despite the fact that he had 1200 men in the Bois de Cour the weight of the attack and the weight of the bombardment that came against him that position only held for just over 24 hours it's probably a miracle that it held for that length of time and then his poilus, his men, his chasseurs à pied were overrun and on the 22nd of February 1916, Emile Drion was killed at the age of 60 trying to command his men in the midst of that chaotic battle. He was buried by the Germans and they wrote to his wife via the Red Cross to say that he had been properly buried with full military honours. His grave was then moved after the war. The spot where he fell is marked by a memorial and there is also a memorial on the site of his original field grave. You can follow a path to that. And then by the side of the road in the Bois de Cour is a large memorial which has men from his regiment buried there and him at the centrepiece of it in his own special grave. Round the corner are the trenches and the command post. 
that's marked and you can go into the command post it's a very large concrete bunker and if you follow the road up towards Flabas you will come to the edge of the woodland a bit of open ground that was no man's land and you can walk along the edge of the wood there and see some of those other bunkers on the German side there the trenches are very well preserved but that's private ground unfortunately it's outside the national forest area but this is a place to come to if you want to get a sense of what the battlefield and what the fight was like at the very beginning of the Battle of Verdun. And Drion, who held this position, holds it still alongside his chasseur who fought with him in that fighting February 1916. From here we'll go from the east bank area of the battlefield, across the valley of the Meurs, past Chatancourt, up towards the ground, the two pieces of high ground on the west bank of the Meurs, where we'll end our tour looking at Mortholm and Cote 304. The west bank of the Meurs at Verdun is really a battlefield in its own right. It's an integral part of the whole Verdun story in 1916. But it was split, of course, the Verdun battlefield by the Meurs Valley and the river itself. The Germans initially attacked on the eastern side of the battlefield at the point where the salient at Verdun, that curvature in the line, was at its most prominent. And as the line was pushed back there, the French defences were pushed back. Then by March of 1916, it was clear to the German commanders that it was essential to be fighting on this west bank as well to push the French lines back there and gradually crush Verdun in the middle. I guess that was the intention here. It was defended, that West Bank, by two pieces of high ground, Mort Homme and Cote 304, Hill 304, 304 metres above sea level. The Germans launched assaults on those in March 1916. The whole ground up there becomes a huge artillery duel, massive bombardments, positions changing hands on a regular basis, and the fighting continues throughout April on into May when Cote 304 and Mortholm are taken by the Germans. And the capture of some of that ground was not properly acknowledged during the war. Well, I think the first edition of the Michelin Guide to Verdun doesn't acknowledge the fact that the Germans took Mortholm, for example. But this became sacrificial ground in exactly the same way as what happened on the East Bank. That ground dominated by the story of the forts and the ouvrages. Here it was a classic First World War battle where it revolved around the possession and repossession of high ground. And like so many corners of the Verdun battlefield in 1916, these small areas of ground surrounding these high points at Cote 304 and Mortholm cost tens of thousands of casualties on both sides. Fighting returned to this area in 1917, and after the attacks on the Chemin des Dames in April and the mutinies of the French army, there are many who believe that the French army was some kind of spent force and they didn't really do anything for the rest of the year. But of course, they did. They participated in the Third Battle of Ypres, for example, and took part in the summer of 1917 in attacks on this ground to retake the high ground that had been lost between Cote 304 and Mort Homme. And one of Christina Holstein's more recent books covers this often forgotten period of the fighting at Verdun in 1917. When you go to Cote 304 today, there is the road up to the very crest of the hill 
On one side of it is more recently planted trees. I came there one year in the 90s when that had all been cleared and the detritus of war and the detritus of soldiers who had fallen in that war, the bones of the fallen were just about everywhere, hopefully recovered, probably to be reburied in the ossuary at Duomont. The central memorial commemorates the units that fought here in the fighting for 304, and in the area to the left, just beyond a field grave of a Zouave's officer, you can walk into the trees there to find trenches and shell holes and the landscape of 1916. And I mentioned in a previous podcast how I stood there one day, one winter in 2016 during the centenary of the battle, and saw the sun coming through the trees illuminating the shell holes and the trenches of a century before and it reminded me of that Nash painting we are making a new world and here was a snapshot of that world created by the huge artillery battles the destruction of total war here in 1916. On the crest of Mort Homme as you follow the road up to the climbing slopes of the hill and come into the wooded area and there is the memorial to the fighting here in 1916 a skeleton a skeletal figure wrapped in a flag holding a torch with the phrase carved in stone beneath it they did not pass a reference to that famous saying of 1916 here defiant here mourning for the loss of so many French soldiers on this battlefield, a ghoulish, terrifying memorial, perhaps apt for Verdun, appropriate for this dark corner of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.